0: It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: G'day, welcome to the Country Hour today. We'll be with you right uh, through until one o'clock because of the continuing rain at the SCG test. Uh, Coming up today, a smaller vintage expected this year because of flooding and the new campaign for lamb.
2: What are you here for? Tried to eat a meat pie with these. Don't know the words to K-San.
3: Charged him a
4: dollar for tomato sauce.
5: <coughs> what is this? Where am I? <coughs>
4: Man,
5: how's that un-Australian?
3: All I said was bon appetit.
1: Yeah, Sam Kekovich is back. A bit of fun coming up a little bit later in the program with the latest campaign for lamb released today. Very un-Australian campaign. Also, Richard Bailey is back for the first time in 2023 to check the latest on the livestock markets for you. Plus, we'll uh, have a check on the weather at the halfway stage and also we'll take your thoughts, if you like, on any issue via the text line 0438 is that number. 0438 Well, it's raining at the SCG and the floods moving through Australia's inland areas have been inundating vineyards in three states and the size of the next vintage is expected to fall floods in the three main growing areas have decimated some crops and fences and irrigation equipment have also been damaged lee McLean, the ceo of australian grape and wine has told david clawton it's been a difficult period for growers
6: well there's there's no doubt that the 2023 vintage is throwing a hell of a lot at a number of different growing regions across the country uh, and that has certainly been felt in new south wales victoria and now south australia the good news is that for a lot of those grape growers out there who have experienced flooding, and this isn't the case across all vineyards, but in a, in a lot of vineyards, is that when the floodwaters uh, come into the vineyard, if they sit there for a period and then the, the floodwaters recede, the, the vines are usually okay, but there is always some impact on things like trellising and posts and irrigation infrastructure uh, and in the vines' ability to produce fruit in the 2023 vintage as well in some instances.
2: And are there large numbers of vineyards that are in those sort of floodplain areas or, or you know, in areas that generally are affected by flooding?
6: There are. So Australia's three sort of major producing areas are all inland irrigated regions. So areas like the Riverina in New South Wales, the Murray Valley in Victoria uh, and the Riverland in South Australia and all of those have experienced either flooding or very wet conditions over the last couple of months. But the other big issue for a number of them, and I know this is particularly evident in places like the Riverina, is that there's been pretty significant disease pressure in some of those regions. And and part of that is due to the fact that, A, it's been wet, but, B, it's been so wet that you can't get your machinery, your tractors and sprayers and the like in to to actually mitigate the worst of it.
2: So we were hearing reports out of Victoria of... um... You know, floods affecting rather Glen and Barossa Valley, Gamby Lakes region. A couple of vineyards had barrels of wine float away. Did you hear about that?
6: Yeah, there was. There's been. There's been a couple of reports of of damage in certain certain businesses, uh, of of significant crop losses and significant losses of of products, which is always really challenging and and uh, and difficult to deal with. Obviously, uh, thankfully, those sorts of uh, reports have been limited.
2: So some. People saying might have lost 75% of their crop, but have you had a chance to assess overall how it might affect production from Australian vineyards this year? Look, I think there's
6: no doubt that production overall will be down, but it's too early to tell uh, what that disease and flooding impact is going to be from a national level but I'm tipping a, a below average sized vintage for uh, 2023.
2: What about dealing with these problems like downy mildew or just getting on to the vineyards in order to do the, the work and spray the chemicals or, or whatever's required?
6: Yeah, it's really, really challenging. Uh, so a number of regions, say the Hunter Valley, for example, and a couple of others have resorted to things like aerial spraying. Now that obviously doesn't work in in every instance, but it has provided some alleviation of, the worst of the, the effects of some of those disease pressures in regions like that. It really depends on what kind of vineyard you're operating. If you are a, a small vineyard that is operating primarily uh, by hand, uh, you're hand pruning, your hand um, spraying and all that sort of thing, uh, you can generally do your best to manage it. If you're working in a, a vineyard that is uh, larger, that is generally um, dealing with machinery, uh, that is much more challenging to, to work through.
2: Are you hearing that people are having to close their doors? Is it affecting the cellar door trade?
6: I think in parts, but generally speaking with the Riverland in particular, there's been actually a real push to make sure people are actually travelling up to the Riverland because a lot of that area was still absolutely available to, to tourism and open for business. But there was a perception out there that due to the floodwaters, people weren't able to... Make their way out to see um, to see those wineries and and cellar doors. There has been some damage to cellar doors in certain regions a- across the country, uh, which has been very challenging for those businesses, of course. But most of the time, when there has been flooding, um, you know our business is pretty pretty adaptable and resilient. They can get themselves up on their feet after a bit of a clean up and and open their doors pretty soon.
2: Now, winemakers, generally speaking, don't like to talk about. Poor quality wine, but what do you think it would do? These kind of conditions in a season like this, on the quality of the wine for the coming vintage.
6: Well, I mean, one of the beauties about that wine is that you know, if you're working on a on a single vineyard, you will have variations through from year to year, uh, and there'll be different sorts of conditions, uh, and that's gonna that's gonna shine through in the wine uh, from year to year. I, I think overall, what will what we'll likely see is that where there has been disease pressure. Uh, in some of those areas uh, you know you will see some um, selection of the the best grapes that are available so we may see a smaller vintage but we'll see a, we'll see a high quality vintage nonetheless because people will be able to be a little bit more selective in what they're putting into the bottle
2: I suppose the silver lining in this too is is maybe twofold because there has been an oversupply of wine in recent years and the other thing is if there's if there's a lot of water around that that bodes well for future uh, vintages, doesn't it, for growers?
6: Well, the the oversupply situation is is interesting, and of course we are in the midst of a a really significant oversupply situation, and that's directly attributable to what has happened with China imposing those trade uh, restrictions on on Australian wine. Uh, so, um, in some certain in some ways, uh, a smaller vintage is not necessarily a bad thing for the Australian sector at the moment, uh, but it is too early to say uh, at this point in time exactly what that's going to be looking like because the, the oversupply that we have in Australia is primarily a, a red wine oversupply as opposed to a white wine oversupply because the vast majority of what we were sending to China was red wine. So I think uh, over the next little while, once some figures start coming in, we'll get a much better picture of that.
1: Yeah, that's Lee McLean, the CEO of Australian Grape and Wine, talking now to David Claughton about the uh, serious flooding in the main three main growing areas of the country and expecting uh, the vintage to be down. Uh, The South Australian and federal governments have announced some support for farmers affected by the floods and Australian grape and wine are encouraging grape growers and winemakers to check on their resources on their website for information on how to handle the wet conditions in the vines. Well, talking about the lower grape harvest, uh, West Australia's main grain handler, the CBH Group, has broken its receival record of 21.3 million tonnes, which was set last season. Many growers across the south of the state are experiencing a particularly long, drawn-out harvest after a slow start, but above-average yields. Ben McNamara, C B H Chief Executive Officer, he says there's still plenty more grain to hit the bins.
7: Yes, yeah, so I think there's probably a couple of million tonnes more out there um, if we go through the zones. We've got uh, Geraldton at 4 million tonnes. That's beaten last year's all-time record of 3.9. The Quinana zone's just over 10 million tonnes. That's uh, exceeded last year's all-time record of 9.4. That's just a massive effort there. Albany's at 4 million tonnes. Still a bit more grain to come in down there. Last year received 4.3. I think we'll go past that. And down in Esperance, we've received 3 million tonnes to date. Last year's all-time record was 3.7. And, yeah, I think there's a bit more grain coming through in the southern parts of the state. There's a lot of grain down there in bags as well. Now,
8: December was a particularly busy month for you, two new logistical records set. You shipped over 2 million tonnes of grain and you moved over 1 million tonnes by rail. How does that stack up historically?
7: Yeah, so the previous record, uh, all-time record, is 1.9 million tonnes set a few years back. Uh, So to do 2.2 million tonnes of shipping was an extraordinary effort by all of our frontline teams. Um, And that was really well supported by rail performance and really backs up the months of October and November, which we also did uh, monthly records of 1.2 and 1.5 million tonnes respectively. So um, fantastic effort by our frontline teams and, and also our contractors there.
8: It's been a late harvest this year. What challenges has that posed for CBH in, I guess, managing this freight task?
7: Yeah, I think from a grower perspective, um, they would be seeing it as a reasonably frustrating harvest, particularly those in the southern part. As you say, it got off to to a relatively so start. There's a fair amount of wet weather that we encountered through the journey. There's a lot of canola out there, which was also slow going as well. That actually pre- presented an opportunity for the cooperative to get uh, more tons or more of that carryover from last year out, and that benefited us in the month of October, where I said we shipped 1.2 million. We also benefited significantly out of our rail performance, and what we've seen over the last six months is month-on-month records, um, culminating in that 1 million tons of uh, of rail uh, during the month of December, which exceeds roughly 900,000 tonnes the previous record. So um, rail performance has been going really well. This is not by chance. It's uh, it's through the uh, the hard work of our frontline teams and also our rail partner in Horizon. So we've bought on three additional uh, fleets. Um, we've seen an improvement in the maintenance performance with least additional rolling stock, including locomotives. And as growers are aware, we're also seeking to acquire more rolling stock as we move forward.
8: That's two very big years in a row. How much carryover are you expecting uh, into this next year? Because already growers are starting to, to plan their programs for the 2023 crop.
7: Yeah, so it's a remarkable effort by growers to go back to back with uh, this magnitude of crops. So 21.3 last year, and as I said, we're going to be well in excess of that this year. Um, so going into this harvest, um, by the time really harvest got going, we had the carryover in the mid 2 million, so from, from last year's crop. Uh, This time next year, we expect that we'll have a a much larger carryover position, larger than probably it's been historically. Um, But really, the carryover number will depend on our logistical performance, and we're setting ourselves up for success, as you've just heard. Uh, So we're working really hard to get that number as low as possible. But yes, it will be higher than what it's probably been historically.
8: Okay, what challenge does that pose for CBH?
7: Well, I think it's uh, it's multifaceted. Um, it'll pre- present challenges from a marketing and trading perspective. Uh, it'll present a challenge from a storage perspective as well. So, we're already working on our plans to address that as we move forward as well. I think, uh, given the wet summer that we've had to date as well, I think growers are probably reasonably well set up and and we're mindful of uh, of that. But it's very early days at this point in time.
8: Just finally, global shipping, it just continues to be a major constraint for exporters around the world. Have you been able to secure enough ships to move the 2022 crop so far? And just how much of a challenge has that been for CBH in coordinating this massive freight task this year?
7: Yeah, well, I think uh, if we go back to the early to mid part of uh, the 22 calendar year, yes, there were significant challenges, particularly with COVID. But as we uh, come the other side of that, I think uh, we're starting to see the benefits of, of our um, strategies um, taking, taking place. Just to give people an example, we're well over 1.5 million tonnes of, of shipping ahead of where we were at this point in time last year. And I think uh, that probably demonstrates that the ships are probably the challenge right now. What we need to do is get more grain to our ports. That's why rail performance is important. That's why working proactively with our road contractors, leveraging grower trucks is, uh, is so important and supporting our frontline teams to ensure that, uh, that we can complete this task sustainably as we move forward.
1: Mind-boggling amount of grain being handled there, CBH Group CEO Ben McNamara. Speaking there too, Jess Hayes, broken their receivable record of 21.3 million tonnes. Uh, which was set last season. Coming up, we'll look back on one of our fabulous stories from 2022 from the West Coast.
9: Catch the Landline Summer Series, hosted by award-winning journalist Pip Courtney. Landline is Australia's only national agricultural television show delivering stories from Australia's rural and regional heartland. Ahead of Landline's return for 2023... ABC in find the Landline Summer Series on ABC iView. From off-the-grid farming to crayfish. Get a taste of Australia with Landline Summer, 12.30pm Sunday on ABC TV
7: and iview.
0: It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Yeah, there's been no play in the third cricket test between... Uh, south africa and uh, australia because of the rain at the sydney cricket ground so let's continue with the country we'll head underground now into the belly of a reinvigorated mine the newly reopened avebury nickel mine has started production after 13 years and will export its first load mech powell headed down past the on the west coast to check out the mine
10: i'm 200 meters underground in the belly of a newly reopened mine on Tasmania's west coast. It's dark and noisy. And in front of me there's two men who have been drilling for hours through solid rock, digging tunnels to get closer to the treasure they're hunting for, Nickel. They've been working here for about a month now, ever since the mine reopened after 13 years in care and maintenance mode.
11: So, Joseph, it's Meg. How oh, are you? Oh, you're all good, mate. Oh, <laughs> That's Jeremy. Sure I'll shake <laughs> you. Yeah, 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 yeah. He doesn't do anything, mate. You've got the wrong coloured shirt White. Right, yeah, man. I've already, I've already <laughs> chipped her about that. We'll <laughs> see. Well, I'll tell you what, probably come out as clean as you do. Yeah, probably.
1: <laughs>
11: <laughs> so we're heading um, down the side of the mine which they call the Avery side of the mine. There's two sides of the mine at the moment. It's the Avery and the Viking, both potatoes. This is Pippi, not
10: food. his real name. He manages the workers who go underground.
11: I don't know about Avery, but um, most of the all bodies are here. I'll, I'll get back to you on that one. I try and spend as much time as I can down here. This is this is where I like being. This is um, yeah, I like being down with the with the work work groups. So um I really only go to the surface uh, by default if I need to go up for meetings or do any um, do anything in the office basically but I, I prefer to spend most of my time down on the ground, underground.
10: I'd say that's pretty unusual.
11: Um, I hear that a fair bit from for a uh, mine manager. I spent too much time underground, some people could say, but um, <laughs> yeah. I mean I uh, again I can remember when I when I started out around some Belt in mine, I started as an apprentice and um I would have only been seventeen, eighteen. Then and I remember going to the portal and watching the miners come out in the end of shift and thinking that's where I want to be. M- my family were well, miners. My father, my elder brothers were well, miners. My grandfather was a miner, so it's certainly certainly in the blood if you like. So um, yeah, yeah. I said I um, started. Yeah, I'm not swinging a sheet of mesh for visitors here. <laughs> not, not in this crap. It's only audio, so
3: not yeah.
11: I'm just door, mate. Yeah, thanks. how about that?
10: We're outside the shafts now, harbour. standing no at signs. the portal. It's surrounded by dense bush, birds and in the distance, the sound of the ocean. I didn't expect it to be so peaceful out here.
11: Yeah, it is. Like I said, it's, um, it's a beautiful spot and like I said the footprint of the mine is quite small. gets a little bit noisy. with machine's coming in our mine from time to time but apart from that, yes, yeah, it's pretty pristine.
10: Now, Pippi, you were... You're from Zane, were you born yeah. in Queenstown?
11: Yeah, born in Queenstown, I lived in Zane um, all my life, give or take uh, a little bit of time away working over the mainland, but uh, mostly in Tasmania and majority of it around uh, Ransom Bell Tin Mine, which I came over uh, to Avery about a year and a half ago from, so for this start-up. The opportunity arose to um, do a restart here, which is pretty important for the community, community I grew up in, so I... Um, thought it would be a good challenge to take on.
10: You lived here your whole life and then built a house just as this mine (laughs) was reopening.
11: Yeah yeah again it's more um, from personal reason like the kids are starting to get older unfortunately on the west coast as beautiful as it is education um, uh, doesn't go through to university so our oldest daughter was starting to travel up to uni and our second eldest was starting to she would have had to travel next year as well um, year 11 and year 12 so um, it was time for for um, family to move up that way to further the kids' education and for me to drive and drive out, unfortunately. I still love love the West Coast and, and miss it terribly, but um, it's just the sacrifices you make when you are working in the mine industry sometimes.
3: My name's Dale Coulson, and I'm a local. I live in Zeehan, and I'm here as a process operator for the Avery Nickel Mine.
10: How long have you lived in Zeehan for?
3: All my life. I was born here. Yeah, love the place.
10: Local through
3: and through? That's it, Yep.
10: So you started with Avebury Mine back before it was Avebury Mine?
3: Yeah, I started here in 2007, 2008 or something, when it was it was out here on commissioning, and we helped actually set the place up ready to operate. I used to be at the Renison Mine, on and off over the years. We've every, It used to shut down every now and then. So and then in between that, a bit of anything, but this is great, yeah.
10: You set up the Avebury mine back in the 2000s and then it went into care and maintenance mode and you stayed on with a few other people. Could you tell me a bit about that time?
3: Yeah, with the care and maintenance situation, the fuels have kept on to finish cleaning up around the place and uh, maintain underground pumps and stuff like that, water, environmental issues, and it's looking really good. It's great to see it happening again. We've been waiting for a while.
10: You must have been getting a bit cynical watching people come and then not do anything.
3: There was a few tyre kickers, yes, uh, so to speak.
10: Why did you stay? That would surely have been quite lonely, I would think. Uh,
3: we did have uh, other people on the shifts with you, with your day and your night shifts, in the care and maintenance mode, and it just flowed on. And in the end, with it, another company took over, like MMG brought the place, Aus- and Osmin or whatever tangled up with it. Um, there was... Numerous times saying we will be starting up and it never ever happened. So uh, As it turned out, we just was part of the furniture and we're still here.
10: Shuttles and yeah yeah. <laughs> for Dale the mines reopening is something like a symbol of hope for the declining town He has lived in and loved his whole life.
3: It was good because we knew we were going to be a bit more secure um, and the town itself it was a buzz as you can imagine um, p- people were asking questions left right and center sometimes you know it was uh, <laughs> you, sometimes you try to avoid a few but uh, in the end when we finally got a bit more confirmation we could tell them straight out it's looking really good let's start up will be happening and how did
10: people react when you could finally say that
3: uh there was it was great it was great the whole town was a buzz because it was pretty quiet for quite a while the little town and um, this has definitely boosted things up it, I don't know if you know much about the housing in that in Zian, but it's pretty hard to get a property in here at the moment because people have gobbled them up. It's it's all happening, yeah.
10: It must feel quite different, not only here in the mine but in Zen.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of new faces. as people moved into the town. Um, don't know them all, never, never will probably, but it's definitely improved and uh, she's really building up. That way we tend to keep... Your uh, um businesses not that alive. Your, your other things like your chemists, your medical centres and all them, they tend to stay on board. Whereas, you know, when towns fold, so does all this. And then people have got a hassle of travelling and finding alternative um, ways of looking after things. So, no, this is great. It's really building up.
1: Yeah, that was minor and lifelong cN resident, Dale Coulson. Ending that report from Meg Powell, you also heard from Pippi, whose real name is Adrian Williams. His dad called him Pipsqueak when he was little. And it's stuck around ever since. And you can jump online and learn more about that story on the ABC Rural website. Well, for the squeamish, you don't have to listen to this, but it is the stuff of nightmares. Waking from your sleep on a camping trip miles away from the nearest hospital to find a cockroach burrowing into your ear but it does happen more commonly than you think. Dozens of people have shared their own stories after Kirsty Barge posted her horrific experience on the Caravan and Camping Australia Facebook site. She told Jennifer Nichols it all unfolded at a campsite, campsite at least in the shire of Collie.
12: Went to the toilet in the middle of the night, as you do. Um, went back to bed, went to sleep, and then I felt something in my ear. Felt like a moss or something had flown into my ear, so that's when I've sat up and started shaking my head, gone, oh, you know, to try and make it fly out Um, and then it's gone in further and that's when I've, got, I've, I've said to my husband, I'm like, oh, my God, turn the lights on, turn the lights on, there's something in my ear and I started shaking my head. I've got a sore neck from shaking my head so much. Um, I started sh- shaking my head trying to try and flip this thing out and it w- wouldn't come out And but, you know, that's when he, he's gotten the light and shines a light in my ear to, and he's got, oh, yeah, there is something in there. Because I don't know what that is. And that's when um he goes, "Quick, put your head over the sink and he started pouring water in there to try and think, you know, the water might make it want to back out. Um We learned that cockroaches don't go backwards. And, <laughs> you know, the water made it go in further. And that's when I, in amongst all the panic, remembered that I had the tweezers handy. So I said, oh, he the, grab the tweezers. Um, And he, yeah, he, he plucked a leg off and <laughs> dropped the leg. And he was, oh, that's a leg. And I, I said to him, don't tell me anything else. I don't want to know. <laughs> oh. like, I don't want to know. Don't tell me anything else. And then that's when he he's grabbed it and started pulling a little bit, and I've like jumped a mile because it felt gross. And he's like, "No, you need to stay still." He's like, "I think I can get it. You need to stay still." And he's he's grabbed it and pulled pulled the whole thing out. Oh my god! And the thing. and he goes, he goes oh, it, it was a cockroach, and I've just sat on the floor with the dog for ten minutes, just like breathing and going, "Is it out? Is it gone? Check my ears." I almost bloody died when I saw the thing because I thought it was like a teeny tiny like little thing from the glimpse that I saw after the whole schmuzzle, but it was way bigger than I thought. So it was just a, a big moment of um, relief, I suppose, of just, oh, my God, that, and realising that it could have been much worse if he, if he didn't get it out and we had to go driving for the hospital. It would have been so much worse. And then we, like I said, we, we've got about, you know, about 20 minutes of gravel track to get out of where we were and that's not something I want to do at night or, you know, in a, in a bit of a hurry, you know.
4: Oh, you must have just felt so revolted.
12: Yes. Eight hundred percent. Honestly, it was it was horrendous. It was so disgusting. When I saw the bug the next day, I was just like, "Such a dirty looking at the thing." And when I saw it the next day, so I, I sat and I counted you know, and you know, made sure it had five legs because I knew my husband had plucked one off by accident when he was trying to pull it out to make sure it had had its other five legs and both antennas and its wings. It wasn't missing any bits. Like. <laughs> Oh. make sure there's no no bits left behind.
4: And when you shared your experience to mm. the Caravan and Camping Australia Facebook site, yeah. what sort of reaction did you get?
12: Most people are echoing the whole oh my god that's disgusting gross that's a nightmare kind of everyone has that general consensus. Um and but there's also been quite a few people sharing stories of, you know, similar experiences of having Bugs in their ear, and what what they found successful to get them out. And there's been a few comments from people that work in emergency departments or um, that kind of thing of saying like what the appropriate first aid is for an insect in the ear. Now we know, you know, the whole oil thing's supposed to be the first go to.
1: Kirsty barge talking there to Jennifer Nichols. Happy camping if you're out there enjoying this Friday be careful. Still to come, the new campaign for lamb, livestock markets with Richard Bailey back and a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward.
5: Thanks, Tony. An Australian woman charged with entering Islamic State territories being granted bail after arguing she and her children have post-traumatic stress disorder. Police allege Mariam Raad willingly travelled to an IS-controlled area of Syria in 2014. The 31-year-old was arrested in the town of Young yesterday after being returned to Australia in October. She's due to face court again in March and faces a 10-year jail sentence if convicted. New data has revealed Tasmania's popul- population's older and ageing quicker than any other jurisdiction in the country. Tasmania's median age is 41.7 compared with 38.6 nationally. Over the next 10 years that gap set to widen, with Tasmania's median age in 2033 predicted to be 44, while nationally it will be 40. And the number of Tasmanians over the age of 85 will nearly double from just over 13,000 to nearly 25,000. And the US House of Representatives has adjourned for a third straight day without a speaker after Republicans again failed to elect anyone to the position. Californian Kevin McCarthy has now been defeated in a total of 11 rounds of voting. Not since 1859 has the lower chamber of Congress voted so many times to pick a speaker. More news at one.
1: Time now to check the latest on the weather. Brooke Oakley joins us from the Bureau. G'day Brooke. G'day, Tony. Any rainfall about?
13: Well, in the 24 hours to 9am this morning, there has been some rain about the north and along the east coast, with the highest totals being 12mm at Sheffield, followed by 9mm at Buckland and 8mm at Ereba. Since 9am today, there's been much less rainfall, with the only significant total being 2mm at Smithton. We are expecting showers to continue about the northwest today but they will be mainly inland this afternoon and evening and it's fine elsewhere apart from possible light showers about the northeast. The weather is relatively settled over Tasmania at the moment and temperatures are gradually warming over the next few days as a northeasterly air stream becomes established. So tomorrow there'll still be light showers about the northeast and fine elsewhere apart from the chance of showers about the northwest. And then on Sunday, fine apart from the chance of morning showers in the northwest. And Sunday is going to be the hottest day for the south and the west with inland areas expecting maximum temperatures in the low 30s. Monday will be the hottest day for the north, but for the rest of the state, a cool change will move through earlier in the day, and that will keep the temperatures lower for southern and western parts. That cool change on Monday will also bring showers to southern, eastern and central Tasmania, with a slight risk of thunderstorms as well. And then on Tuesday, there'll be isolated showers that will contract to the north in the evening. They do continue about the north because of a lingering trough, but then generally settled weather returns for the whole state from Wednesday onwards.
1: OK, any warnings?
13: There are no warnings today, but there is a strong wind warning for the far northwest coast tomorrow.
1: And for those wanting to go out on the waters over the weekend, what's the scenario?
13: Well, for today, we have east to south easterly winds at 10 to 20 knots, tending east to northeasterly during the afternoon and evening. And then for tomorrow, east to easterly winds at 10 to 20 knots, reaching up to 25 knots about the south and up to 30 knots about the northwest. Those winds are lighter and more variable about the central west though. In terms of the swells in the west and south, a southwesterly near two metres today, decreasing to one to two metres tomorrow. And the wave rider boy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 2.4 metres, In the north, confused below one metre. And in the east, an easterly of one to one and a half metres. And a southerly below one metre, tending southwesterly one to two metres offshore in the south. And the wave rider buoy at Moriah Island is currently reading 1.6 metres.
1: Good on you, Brooke. Thank you for that. Thanks, Tony. Cheers. Brooke Oakley from the Bureau with the latest information for you on The Country Hour. Coming up shortly, we'll uh, check the livestock markets with Richard Bailey and the new campaign for lamb.
2: Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Candinen Group and ABC Rural.
0: Coast to coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Well, the east coast of Tasmania is crying out for more wildlife carers as the summer season is here, bringing more tourists and, of course, an increase in the roadkill. Our reporter, Hilary Burden, visited two wildlife carers based in Bishano who've been treating roadkill survivors for over a decade. Vicky Garrity and Jeff Preston from Paddy Mellon Wildlife Refuge explained what's involved.
4: We turned Paddy Mellon Park into wildlife refuge into a, a non-profit organisation and I think it was 2010, and we've been caring on a much larger scale since then. Right.
0: And it's my understanding that everyone who cares for wildlife in Tasmania has to be
4: registered? Yes, you have to be a, a registered wildlife carer and uh, start off at, at the beginning like you do. Um, so you start with some of the more common and easier animals, mostly now you have to go to do a couple of very cheap workshops which show you the basics and then you get to have practical experience on paddy melons possums and bennett's wallabies from there and jeff as i drove into paddy
0: Mellon park this morning you were looking after a little joey what was her story
14: oh that was um nine month old um, eastern gray kangaroo she came down from, well, came up from Huonville, It was um, obviously just uh, another one that was the result of a rogue kill. So she's um, yeah doing quite well. She's been here a couple of months and um, yeah. So.
0: so you used to run the uh, caravan park here in Bishino. Why did you take on wildlife caring, Jack?
14: You- Actually, I retired, <laughs> <laughs> and there's no such thing as retirement apparently. So. Um, <laughs> We start. We're getting bigger and bigger, looking after animals. So we had to um, establish Paddy Mellon Park Wildlife Refuge. So,
0: how many animals do you look after every every day?
14: At the moment, we've got 21 in care, all on bottles. So um, yeah, that's quite a few, ranging from uh, wombats to paddy melons to eastern greys, uh, to um, Bennett's wallabies as well, and a couple of possums. Yeah.
0: And what does Vicky? What does that mean for your day in retirement? How does it go?
4: Well, it starts pretty early, about 6 o'clock, and the last feed, if we're lucky and we've got no pinkies, the last feed's about 10 o'clock at night. Um, Routine, routine, routine. Makes it really hard to have a day out, off, or anything like that. It means if, if one of us needs to go to somewhere, the other one has to fill in the gaps. We do have volunteers that come. A lot of them, most of them are international people, and uh, they come and help out. The amount of help they're able to give depends on how long they've been here and, and their actual um, learning ability to. To do what's necessary,
0: and you're operating the refuge from your home. There's a lot of infrastructure here now that seems to have evolved over the time and as per needs. What do you actually? What facilities have you actually put in over the years, Jim? Uh,
14: okay, we've got lots of enclosures. We've got um, you know 900 square metre enclosure, 1200 square metre enclosure. We've got three wombat runs, uh, which can be used also as um, for Tasmanian devils. Yeah, and plus we've got. Um, um, a nursery which we've uh, built which uh, cater for the young sort of uh, pinkies up to velvet stage um, until they can go outside into the smaller enclosures and then yeah we have got um, Avery's quite a few different enclosures for sure and a penguin enclosure as well so um, which um, has been around now for about I mean, eight years nine years now so. Yeah.
0: So it's a lot of investment as a not-for-profit organisation how do you
4: how are you funded? Um, I apply for a lot of grants That doesn't necessarily help as much as you'd think because every year there's a a focus on what grants are for.
14: (laughs) Someone wants to have a say? Edit that one out. Who's Um, that? Oh, it's a parrot.
4: (laughs) You know, like one year all the grants are for people in rural situations or young children or educating or mental health or something. So, you know there's not a whole lot of grants that you can go for but we've had some very very helpful local organizations like the Lions and the Bishno Develop Community Development Association and Bendigo Bank So, um, and even our local <laughs> council have helped with, with uh, some funding. We have a couple of private people who who would not like their names mentioned but they also chip in quite regularly and they they are one of our biggest f- help with funds.
0: And you said 21 animals currently with you, but um, where do most of the animals come from that need care, Jeff?
14: A good percentage of them come from uh, roadkill. Um, you know, mum's been run over obviously um, by a car or something, or, you know, a few dog attacks. Uh, but basically, yeah, may- the uh, a great majority is from roadkill. So.
0: And are you seeing that numbers increase, or is that an average that's
4: over time? What what what's the issue there? It certainly decreased during COVID. So I would say uh, the higher number of of roadkill happens during the tourism season, but it certainly doesn't negate the fact that. Often Tasmanians are the, the drivers as well. so um, What
0: do we need to be telling ourselves in that case? <laughs> or are there
4: people who can't be told? Uh, I think there's a few that can't be told, but also, um, you know, all the signs that say drive slower at night time it doesn't take a lot to keep your eye on the edge of the road and see if there's something there slow down as you go round it they they've got no road sense they they'll jump the wrong way in in a mob of kangaroos or wallabies. The first thing they do is all jump in different directions it's it's a um, a tactic that they use and because they're on their own on the own, on the side of the road, it doesn't equate in their mind not to jump in front of you so you know it it's Better to be aware that they're going to be there during daylight and dusk and dawn, and then you can just be a bit slower. It's you know, it doesn't hurt. Generally, how much does it cost for one animal to be to be looked after here? Well, it depends on how old they are when they come in, but on a, on a good average, I'd say it's five hundred dollars to raise a paddy melon wallaby. Um, a little bit uh, a bit cheaper for possums, but you know when you get a a very small wombat or eastern grey kangaroo, you've got them for approximately 18 months to two years, and it's going to cost you a couple of thousand dollars to hand raise that. Wildlife milk is quite expensive. Um, You need all the enclosures um, and the time, obviously. All Australian wildlife is lactose intolerant, so you can't just give it cow's milk or any of the, um, the cheaper options. You need to buy the proper wildlife milk, and that costs... Plus, you've got vet foot bills and just the amount of washing you go through, you've got power bills.
0: <laughs> and in terms of wildlife carers on the East Coast, um, are there enough?
4: Um, what's the state of play there? There's never enough. A lot of people who do wildlife caring, are pe- and you need to have the time to do it properly, there's no point in doing it halfway, uh, on a pension of some sort or retired or something like that so they've got the time to do it there's just never enough carers we're packed to the gunnels normally we would have more more wildlife but because it's so busy this year we've got a lot of tiny ones and we haven't got any big ones outside yet normally you know like they start off small and then you've got some big ones that don't take as much care and then the little ones which take more care <laughs> but we've got all little ones at the moment.
14: I mean, obviously we come to the tourist season now, uh, which well, just not now, but soon, uh, and then numbers do increase then, obviously with um, a lot more people on the road, so, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
4: And what would your message be to people?
14: Slow down. <laughs> Simple.
4: And if you hit something, please stop and look in the pouch. You don't have to touch it or do anything. All you have to do is ring a number, and we will come a running.
1: Yeah, doing a great job there, Vicki Garrity and Jeff Preston from Paddy Mellon Wildlife Refuge in Bishnau on the east coast, explaining to Hillary Burden what's involved in caring for wildlife, and why more wildlife carers are needed. We also heard from Woody the parrot, who apparently agrees with everything that was said. Well, from parrots to uh, lambs, and have you seen the new lamb campaign yet? This year, the annual campaign funded by Meat and Livestock Australia's producer levy shows ordinary people being disappearing at least into a desert wasteland for any offence deemed un Australian. Let's take a listen to the latest campaign. What are you here for? Tried to eat a meat pie with these.
2: Don't know the words to K San.
4: Charged him a dollar for tomato sauce. <coughs>
5: What is this? Where am I? (coughs) Lamb, how's that?
3: Honest travel.
4: All I said was, bon appetit.
3: Beautiful
9: day. Lamb doesn't get any better than this.
15: I'm Graeme Yardy and I'm the domestic market manager for Meat and Livestock Australia. The idea behind the ad really is, you know, lamb, it's such a fantastic meat. It's the only meat that really brings people together. And we know that, you know, obviously the aroma and the taste and it's hard to resist the smell of lamb when it's cooking in a house and we know that it's such a great sharing thing. It really does bring people together. And every year we we look for something topical but we also think about well what are the things that are keeping people apart and what can lamb do to um, to help I guess uh, break down those barriers. And this year we, we focused on this idea about calling things un-Australian and and what we found out was really, it's, got, it, it's really out of hand. You know, we've obviously seen it used in politics, we've seen it used in general parlance, but we've really seen how calling something an Australian sort of is, is actually quite divisive and tries to separate us and for some way sort of say we're not worthy of the term Australian. And so I think we decided to poke fun at the ridiculousness of, of calling it and really work out that we're actually all doing things that someone could call out an australian And we also found out that actually a lot of people have been called un-Australian for things they're doing.
16: There's been a number of challenges for livestock producers in Australia and lamb producers with flooding and, and weather conditions. But you know, at the same time, lamb prices went up quite a lot last year too and have been hearing from consumers that are choosing uh, other types of meat just with the cost of living rising. How much do you think this ad campaign might help to get more people to choose lamb?
15: Without a doubt we're all feeling those pressures in all aspects of our lives these days. But you know I think where this ad comes to play is that we always set out to really remind people about why lamb is so great and we have the best product in the world it's you know amazingly produced in some of the the best country in the in the world and and that quality really comes through and it's something that our lamb producers are, are really proud of and should be as well.
16: Meat and Livestock Australia's domestic market manager, Graham Yardy. So what do people in the industry think about the lamb ad? Pastoralist David Farley from Narricourt in South Australia says the ads usually catch his attention.
6: I'm probably not very social media savvy. I'm a bit unusual for a 44-year-old farmer. I'm probably not on any social media and things like that. So when I've got some spare time, I'll probably just go onto the MLA website. If I'm looking at some livestock prices, I'll just sort of see it there and go on it from there.
16: He says prices for quality lamb have remained strong in the last six months.
6: The demand for, I think the lamb seems to be very good and good quality lamb It's really about quality, seems to sell very much and that's sort of the aim, the end that we're sort of aimed at and that we're sort of sell to some sort of more specialised markets and those markets don't seem to be affected much at all. Whereas more of our older sheep seem to be more affected, like any, any coal, sheep and things like that, the market's really come right back.
16: Narra-court pastoralist David Farley. Brett Gerbhardt is a butcher in South Australia's Riverland. He says he usually sees a spike in sales after the annual lamb ad airs.
17: You know, the Sam Kakovich uh, ads that always seem to pop up just before Australia Day, everyone loves them, and they are very controversial. It's great to see those ads come through and and always get a bit of a smile on their face because it does, it stimulates everybody's thoughts when it comes to barbecuing and all that sort of stuff, so yeah, it's it's pretty cool.
16: He says more shoppers are choosing secondary cuts of lamb amid
17: cost of living pressures. Looking back a lot of years ago, it was just a lamb roast on a Sunday, um, and you know even the by-products like lamb shanks were thrown out to the animals outside the dogs outside and the lamb flaps now everybody's you know we can't keep up we wish lamb had probably ten legs instead of two, four because there's just not enough lamb shanks to go around because the change in the trends of people's eating habits and, uh, and and I guess yeah again it comes down to a lot of the familiarization with what gets put on television and how people perceive certain cuts now which were secondary cuts have now become very very popular
16: What are some of the secondary cuts that have risen in popularity?
17: Well, speaking of the shanks and the breast, obviously the flaps. It's a bit similar to, I know we're talking lamb, but it's very similar to when you do a breakdown of a a beef. You know, like brisket was not so much even sought after back in those days. Now everything, everybody's into low and slow. So even the the cuts from a lamb's chest plate can be done so well that it's almost like it it becomes a, a gourmet product.
1: Riverland butcher Brett Gebhardt sending that story from Eliza Burlarge with additional reporting from Elsie Adamo. And it's all about the new campaign for lamb. You can see the MLA lamb campaign on Australian lamb social pages and also on the Meat and Livestock Australia website. Good ad, actually. Very clever. Very un-Australian. No, it's not. Uh, Will, g'day, Will. He says, so far since retirement, I've found that life is a full-time occupation. It takes up all my time. Thank you, Will. That's one for the uh, deep end of the pool, I think. <laughs> good to hear from you. Okay, for the first time this year, let's head out to the livestock markets and say good day to Richard Bailey. All the best for the new year, Richard. Same, Tony.
9: Same. I think it'll be a
1: ripper. Yeah, 2023, we made it. <laughs> uh Now, the cattle market. Uh, not too much happening locally this week. Uh, very, very few at Perenna. But uh, all the action on the mainland.
9: Uh, yeah, only with wiener sales, really. Um, a lot of the major cattle, prime cattle sales in Victoria and New South Wales were on Monday, Tuesday. Obviously, no sales Monday, and a lot of these sale yards didn't bother to go Tuesday. I think there might be a, a message there uh, <laughs> for our locals. And so, really not not really worth quoting, but probably the the major focus this week and next week are, are the wiener sales in Victoria, they started in the northeast at Bunawatha, with the old Wodonga sales, um, and a number up through there. And then next week, Hamilton and Caseram between them over the whole week yard about twenty thousand wieners, So pretty big week coming up. Generally speaking, the reports have been that they've the, the the prices have been at least as good as they thought they'd be. You know, so they're as good as before Christmas and. Because there's been a bit of negativity around the cattle markets, and sort of obviously they're not nearly as good as the ridiculous prices of last year, but they've held up exceptionally well. You know, a lot of cattle making between five and six hundred cents a kilo, um, and obviously the, the lighter you get, the dearer they get, and the heavier you get, the cheaper per kilo you get. But uh, they're looking, yeah, it's, it's, it's looking pretty promising. Interesting talking to a couple of interstaters yesterday at the Toma Valley lamb sale. From up around Bendigo, and they were telling me that their season's been similar to us. That they've been wet and cold. A lot of the lambs haven't done. A lot of the cattle haven't done. Uh, and he was, one of the blokes was telling me that he's got a client. I think it was in the middle of New South Wales somewhere, and I can't remember the exact amount, but it was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of acres of, of ground that's just totally underwater. You know, the, the places I believe the Darling River, which is normally sort of you know, just normal sizes, in places it's three or four kilometres wide. Yeah. It's just uh, – and so until that all dries out, um, at some of those places, they just can't – you know, they won't be able to buy cattle. But there are – out of these uh, um, weaner sales so far, there are cattle going north, which is, of course, going to be helpful to the the prices in Victoria.
1: Yeah, okay. And Power Renner back on next Tuesday?
9: Yep, yep. Um, we've got uh, – yeah we've uh, we've got Piranha next Tuesday then Wednesday, we've got the Midland circuit sale, which includes the, the sort of incorporates what used to be the old Tunbridge Corridale sales and then on the- on the Thursday there's the Oatland sheep and lamb sale, mainly lambs I, I'm guessing that there'll be well over ten thousand lambs there, so that'll be a pretty big day and then the following week on the eighteenth we've got the first of the store cattle sales back at Piranha for the year so uh, we've got a bit of going on in the next couple of weeks
14: Alright,
1: now yeah. lamb and sheep, you mentioned you were at uh, the Tama yesterday?
9: Yeah, I went down to the Tamer Valley uh, side yesterday as usual uh, first class quality of lambs at are- both uh, you know, at the Weymouth sale and at the Dilston sale, um, Greenhouse sale. And as a result, the prices I thought were very, very good. Um, and, and I would think a fair bit better than were expected. Um, the best of the lambs made $162 to $172. They all went to kill. Um, so that gives you an indication of, of uh, what sort of quality they were. Uh, the next one of those lambs were $128 to $146. Most of the medium weight lambs anywhere from 90 to 126 dollars, light 60 to 76 dollars, and then the very small ones 22 to 42 dollars a head. Just interesting looking back on last year's uh, sale. Not that it's that relevant, but it's just of interest. You know, they were a little bit cheaper. You got to remember, last year was was we on fire. So uh, I thought that they they were uh, it was an extremely good sale. Now it should be remembered for those that are selling lambs that these these sales have been around for a fair while, 21 years I think. Yep. And there are a lot of repeat buyers come into these into these sales, and they're, they're all first and second cross lambs. You know, they're, they're not out of straight merinos or so. There's a there's a big difference. While I'm saying this, there's a big difference between Comparing that sale yesterday with say the sale at Oatlands in in December, where a lot of those lambs were out of Merino use, so that's the that's the difference there. But very very good day. Generally speaking, the lamb markets during the week once again didn't really ramp up until Wednesday and Thursday. Interesting at Hamilton on on Wednesday, there were forty three thousand lambs. And of them, 75% were bought to go back to the paddock and it was bought by restockers. And that indicates just how the cold and wet season has affected these lambs. It's, um, it's extraordinary. At this time of the year, you would expect 70 or 80% of the lambs uh, to be killed and 25% back to the paddock. So that sort of, to me, signs, some few danger signs going forward. Those lambs are going to have to come back at some stage. But on to prices, and the the heavy lambs, this has been the case for some months now, the, the extra heavy lambs are selling exceptionally well, anywhere from sort of 780 to 820 cents a kilo. But then once you got back to those sort of 20 to 24 or 5 kilo lambs, you're back around that 700 cents a kilo, and the better one, 720 or 30 cents. So there's a big difference there. And then you got into your planar type of lambs, and they were – anywhere from sort of 600 to 700 cents a kilo. So while we've got this great discrepancy in price, the very good lambs and the heavy lambs, I think will continue to sell pretty well, but there'll be a bit of a struggle on the others for a little while.
1: Okay, any early New Year indications of uh, the mutton price?
9: Uh, Mutton price actually at Wagga yesterday was a little bit stronger. I think we'll wait and see for a minute. Certainly some good signs out of China, I think. I think if, you know, we don't, let's face it, you don't have to pick up a, there aren't many of the Chinese have to eat a bit of mutton to suddenly push the demand up pretty quickly. There's a lot of them. And there are some pretty good indications, I think, that some of the trade talks have improved. Um, And and so certainly this month, I think it is that uh, quite a few of our tariffs that have been in place or that, that, that we've been charged to go into India have been lifted, and that'll help a lot of our rural products as well. And I think there's some pretty good signs out of some negotiations with the e- EU and, and the Brits. So there's some pretty good positive signs there. The only headwind like I can see is that we're going to have a lot of lambs coming forward somewhere between February and May, I would think. Okay. Anyway, but wait and see on that one, Tony.
1: Yeah, and the processes back to normal, Greenhams and uh, yep. JBS? Yeah.
9: Everyone, yeah, and and, and TQM at, at Cressy are up and they're killing some good numbers of lambs now. Um, after all, their their renovations and their extensions, and and that's ongoing. But uh, that that's it's good, and um, obviously the, we have the interstaters that come in and take uh, lambs and sheep and cattle out of the the market. So yeah, everything's back to normal in that way.
1: Okay, you have a great weekend, Richard.
9: Good on you, Tony.
1: Yeah, Richard Bailey. We'll be back with the country our next Wednesday and Friday to uh, check the power and the sale and what's happening on the mainland markets. Uh, don't forget to visit ABC Rural Online. Plenty of great stories there as well as the ABC Rural Facebook page. Plenty of good reading for you over the weekend. Not sure what's happening with the cricket. I think it's still raining in Sydney. So uh, if not the cricket, we'll have some uh, more entertaining programs for you coming up on ABC Local Radio. Country Outback after Midday Monday.